Welcome to the Ankler Podcast. This is Sean McNulty from the Wake Up Newsletter here at the Ankler on the afternoon of Thursday, December 7th here in New York City, where we have a little smattering of snowflakes, Elaine. How about that? Ooh, snowflakes. I don't know what that is out here in LA. <laughs> Are you familiar with the question? I preface that by, by defining what it is first. Set, set the stage. Yeah, well, I'll be going back to Chicago soon. There'll be lots oh, of snowflakes there. Yeah, you'll be, yeah, don't worry about that. I, I kind of feel like I should be in a, a Peter Kiefer approved comfy scarf with like some hot chocolate instead of the workout clothes. A little clothes. flannel, got, a little beanie. No, no, yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah <laughs> just not, I'm not setting the mood here uh, with my workout clothes. So uh, we'll see how that goes. Anyway, that's uh, Elaine Lowe, of course. And we also have Richard Rushfield in Los Angeles. And we have the uh, host of the Martini Shop podcast, Rob Long, joining today. Rob, are you also enjoying the wintry scenery here in New York? Yeah, I was like walking to this place to do this recording and do my little work today. And I, I felt like I was in a Hallmark, you know, movie. Yeah, a little know? bit. It was like, you know, yeah. I'm in a big city. I don't have time for emotion. And then here I am. I'm a podcast. I'm on a podcast. I don't have time for this. And then, of course, my going to be visited by three ghosts later on. Oh, is like that winter. it? I, I thought nice. you'd be moving to the countryside and finding romance. One of the two. And either I, way, I, I you know. still a cup of hot cocoa and, you know. Exactly. It writes itself. Rob's going to be joining us to give a TV writer's perspective on, on Norman Lear and also share some perspectives out there in TV writing land. And then Richard, someone named Janice Min is going to join us. Mythological Janice Min, the CEO, of course, here at The Ankler. She's going to join us to uh, share a conversation she had with Melissa DeRosa, who was New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's right-hand or chief of staff during the COVID epidemic here in New York State for some perspectives on the presidential race. But first, a couple of housekeeping items. There are two new things to look out for here at The Ankler. The first is a new weekly newsletter called Prestige Junkie, which I think landed today in people's inboxes, but if not, they'll be coming shortly. And on Saturday, that would be uh, December 9th, the Ankler's new Art and Crafts podcast will debut. It's programmed by Delphine Figueroas and Alex Speedy of Industry Insiders. And the idea behind Art and Crafts is to take you behind the scenes and examine the careers and contributions of the talented artisans who create and craft the movies and TV series that we love. And the uh, first episode kicks off with a great lineup featuring Oscar-nominated production designer Janine Oppenwall in conversation with costume designer Ellen Morajnik and production designer Ruth DeYoung about their work on Oppenheimer. You can head to theankler.com to check that out and, of course, follow The Ankler on the socials at the Ankler for more information on both. All right, Elaine, we have a SAG deal officially stamped. Do you get a signed copy from Fran and Duncan or how's this work? I'm waiting for my plaque here. With the 78% uh, approval rating on a 38% voter turnout, which after 118 days, the the turnout of 160,000 members was about 38%, which is actually much higher than it's been in past years. Are there any numbers on what number of that 150,000 membership never knew they were on strike? <laughs> That's a fine question. <laughs> That's a poll you can uh, yeah, you can put out in the ankler there, Richard. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, you know, the Writers Guild was 99%, I think. Uh, 99% ratification, ratification vote. Only 90 members voted no on that. It was something like over 8,400 members who had voted right. yes on that one. So by a landslide, not so much on the SAG side. There was a lot of vocal dissent on the <laughs> AI front. And you could see it happening on social, but it was interesting to see how that was going to translate to a vote. Um, 78% solid vote, but not as overwhelming as 99%. And again, after how many months of being on strike? And for comparison, in 2020, the SAG vote was about 75% with about 25% voter turnout, similarly in 2017 as well. Yeah. So definitely a higher higher approval rate, higher turnout than past cycles. But when you compare it to the WGA vote, it's sort of re reflective of their vote of confidence in, in leadership. Yeah, and all the... The buzz and conversation that everybody's involved in this, and it's a not, not even forty percent of the body sends no. a vote in, you know, which is which is not again uh, to Richard's point. How many actors are working who are in the guild and things along those right. lines? So it, it does makes a lot logical sense, I guess. But the evidence continues here, Elaine. But congratulations to everybody in town for three approved deals with the main three main talent guilds here as we round out 2023. But IATSE, uh, Elaine, is on the, on the horizon. Oh, goodness. Yes. What's the general time frame here? And just remind folks about the importance of IATSE in our business and so forth, if you would. Sure. So IATSE, which remember, which represents Hollywood's crew members, You're, we're talking, you know, camera operators, motion picture editors, costumers, cinematographers, makeup artists, everybody else who helps make Hollywood run behind the scenes on set 
They have a contract coming up at the end of July. And recall in 2021, there was a very strong strike authorization vote. I think it was something like 97, 98 percent. But they wound up not going on strike. But there was already strong impetus in 21 for potentially, you know, for that to happen. And I'll tell you, I've had a lot of IATSE folks come up to me and, and, you know, say, hey, I I wonder what the odds are that we're going to go on strike for the next one. And there seems to be a willingness to. I mean, there's been a lot of financial pain. People have been out of work for a long time this year, but they're looking at their contract and saying, hey, like, look at what the Writers Guild and SAG have done. And the Teamsters, you know, the Hollywood locals, they represent dispatchers, drivers, animal handlers, wranglers, like location managers. They also have a contract coming up next year. And Hollywood Basic Craft. So we're potentially looking at more labor action in 24. Yeah. But we do get a little bit of a break. So IATSE probably won't come on. A couple of months. A couple of months before the IATSE conversations begin in earnest, I would say, right? Yeah. 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 So enjoy enjoy your wintertime, everybody. We'll see when, Richard, you have when your first impending strike column begins in 2020. Uh, well, 2023 or 2024 here, 2026. Just keep it going, Richard, right? I'm on strike against strike columns. <laughs> that That's a column I would love to read. So we'll, we'll, we'll wait for that one. I, I wrote um, 50 this year. I, I've, I've given my blood. Yeah, exactly. The ink is uh, ink has been spilled. So I'm actually going to bump up our, our box office chat here a bit this week. Usually we do it toward the end of the podcast. And that we're not going to have too much to talk about in January, guys. Richard, Amazon MGM moved up there. Snoop Dogg pick underdogs. Don't forget the extra G in there, of course. Moving it from a theatrical release on January 26th to an Amazon Prime streaming movie. Not a shock per se, but that leaves just four studio-wide releases in January, three of which are on the same weekend. Never change, Hollywood. You know, Richard, if the strikes really affected TV to its core in 2023 here in the fall, the movie business is in for it in 2024 no, at this point, right? Yeah, they the, the theaters are going to have some tough times ahead. People keep saying the, the the reckoning is at hand for the theaters. Their finances can't hold another minute longer. So they're going to get a real stress test in the next uh, six, eight months here. You know, it's, it's setting up for, recall last year, there were no releases in January. So an illumination picture had the entire month to itself, right? And just blazed through it. So uh Migration is migration is uh yeah could be poised for even more success here or Wonka or exactly or both you know either way but also we announced this week Disney's putting <laughs> their their Pixar films that never got a shot in theaters back into theaters so they're actually releasing Soul re-releasing Soul or I don't even know if it's a re-release or a release Richard I don't know how to refer to this but either way you have three Pixar films coming in one a month in January February March so uh, Disney's trying to keep a little a little skin in the game in the theatrical business here in the first quarter. Well, that'll 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 do it. Uh, exactly, but worth a shot. Been available on on TV for two years and in, in the theaters. So I'm I'm sure Elaine's taking the kids to Seoul, right, Elaine? I take my children to movies, Sean. <laughs> I, I object to this. I just said that one. I was just saying, would you mothering? Take, it was more of a commentary on what you take to do a film. You could watch at home no, with them I on your television. Might. I might. Yeah? I might. All right, take a photo and send it to me. I'll put it in the wake up. There you go. And say. Show to you, Sean. That's it. <laughs> but worth noting, Elaine, too, 2024, there are no Marvel MCU movies, depending upon how you count Deadpool 3. But I think that that's generally considered, a, you know, a, a separate franchise. No DC movies and still no Star Wars movies. What's Comic-Con going to do in the summertime, Elaine? This is a, oh my gosh, a year we have right. not had a year like this in, I think someone said it was 13 or 14 years where there's been none of these films going on. Although I don't know about you as a Marvel consumer, someone who loved all the Avengers movies and everything, I still feel like I have to catch up on all of the TV shows. Oh, yeah. Like I haven't I mean, seen, you know, the you Marvels know. yet because I'm like, well, I got to go back and watch Ms. Marvel. I got to go catch up first. So it's like I, it's almost a little bit of a breather yeah. for everyone. And uh, as far as Comic-Con goes, well, this year is pretty bleak for the fanboys. The year after you have Marvel getting online with all the, the Fox acquisitions. They have Fantastic Four and the X-Men joining the MCU as well as Deadpool coming this year. And then the James Gunn Superman uh, that uh, to restart. Oh, yeah. 2025 is going to be showtime for, uh, for, for Comic-Con. But. I believe both Marvel and DC are planning to be at Comic-Con this year, which they haven't been. So Comic-Con 
if you like that sort of thing, it might be one to watch. That is true, because they'll have had essentially six months of shooting going on, so they'll have plenty of footage or teasers to put out there for films you won't see for another year. And they'll definitely, at that point, be wanting to tell the story of... Yes. The new Good era. things are coming. Yes, yes. Don't worry, Rob. Rob, don't worry. Your superheroes are returning. You're going to be all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I'll have to. I'll have to soldier through. <laughs> if they're going to take so long to do it, maybe they could come up with a different story. Maybe every third act could be different this time with these superhero movies. I mean, they have the extra time. Let's how about making a movie that looks different from all the other movies? Oh, they, they, have, they have big, what? they have big space aliens throwing buses yeah. at each other. Right? Yeah, exactly right. There's always some woman with a baby carriage pointing up at the sky, and then you cut to her later, and she's got her baby safe. It's at every one of these. Can improve on that? Yeah, I guess not. Well, I mean, you know, I guess the audience doesn't care, but well, maybe what if they do? Seems like that's they're starting the to, Rob, and that seems to be the yeah. problem. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, Anyway, we'll see. That certainly opens up some oxygen for other projects, which I think is also an interesting thing to watch next year, because if we're not talking about that or audience is not spending their money on that, they'll still want to hopefully go to the movies and see things. So uh, we'll see what what fills the void and what new things can be created. Perish the thought. But we do have some new films this weekend, Richard. We have our specialty weekend, the big specialty weekend, The Boy and the Heron coming out, the anime pick Zone of Interest, I believe it's the, from Jonathan Glazer and A24. And poor things coming out from Searchlight. So <laughs> the film nerd showdown uh, of all time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I saw both Boy and the Heron and uh, Zone of Interest, both very well crafted movies. I mean, Zone of Interest might be my favorite movie of the year, but but oh, wow. not what you'd call a, a pop. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it is for the Richard Rushfield brand, I think. So we shall see how that turns out here at the box office this weekend. But all right, uh, we're going to shift to our next segment here. Up next, some perspectives on this uh, the in- big loss in the industry this week of Norman Lear. And the land's going to take us inside the pitch rooms of Hollywood these past two months to see what's moving and what's getting a, wow, that sounds really interesting uh, response from uh, from folks around town. But uh, we'll be right back in a moment. All right, Rob Long, the TV business lost a legend this week. What are your thoughts here of Hollywood reflects on the, on the career of Norman Lear? Yeah, I mean, I was actually trying to write about it and I was trying to list the the Norman Lear family tree, which is enormous. I mean, just so many shows and shows from the shows. It starts all in the family, sort of the big trunk of the tree, but it goes to Maud and then Good Times and the Jeffersons, of course. And then he had these sort of offshoot shows like One Day at a Time. One Day at a Time was famously about a single mom in Indianapolis. And that was when the decade became sort of instead of post 60s decade where big issues were being yelled about to like me decade where it's like a lot of me stuff, a lot of personal issues, people dealing with being a single mom and premarital sex and alcoholism. And that's kind of where those issue shows went in the latter part of the 70s and early 80s until really the Jeffersons, which was one of his biggest shows ever. Huge, huge hit. I mean, I remember. My first bosses would worked on the Jeffersons, and like oh. that, that was a big, big, funny show. And by the time it was the number one show in the country for a couple of years running, maybe two or three years running, or way up there, top five, it was just a kind of a funny update, kind of honeymooners style about kind of a cranky dad and a stay at home mom, and his daughter married a guy he disapproved, whose racial makeup he disapproved of, and they lived in a deluxe apartment in the sky. Um, British neighbor and Paul Benedict played the British neighbor, the UN neighbor. And th- these were issue shows. That's what ushered in the personal issue show. Yeah. So it went from the political to the personal. And that was kind of the movement of the 70s. So, so Norman Lear kind of represents a lot of American culture, like starts in the 60s and then ends up kind of me decade SD kind of, you know, Southern California, you know, healing. But he was always a funny guy. And I think especially the last couple of years or the last 20 years, he never quite understood, and I don't understand, I think he's right, I don't understand it either, why no one has, you know, we live in pretty tumultuous times ourselves right now. Like, yeah, it I've seems heard, like yeah, exactly. you, you'd want to have a show like that. But just everybody right now, honest to God, everybody right now is just too chicken shit. Well, can you, and, can you imagine, uh, I mean, there's something so, like, quaint about, here's here's a show where we're, we're a family on different sides as a cultural divide. Right. I'd well argue about, I mean, can you imagine what that, argument would be like right <laughs> around the table yeah. like every right. single person at that table would be 
and the actors who played them and the writers that would be banished from. Uh, oh, my God. Can you imagine that? Well, wasn't I mean, again, most of his shows are a little before my time. I was more of the facts of life, different strokes generation at best. But like, I mean, Maud was a famously big thing about abortion. Wasn't that a huge topic of conversation or in, at the time? in the 70s? Yeah. Yeah. Those are big issues. I mean, who, could you imagine an abortion issue on NBC? Oh. Of, yeah. uh, I mean, if there was to be a sitcom, there is not one on there right now. I think they have, you know, uh, any at this point. But, you know, yeah, these topics are as fresh as they were then. But, you know, can you imagine yeah. that happening at this point 50 years later? No, no. Th- and there's a couple explanations for that. W- one is that there's already plenty of screaming about politics and culture on TV. So there's more of it, watch true. It. It's right yeah. there. Yeah. You can see it on the and that's what every news channel is. And the second thing is that people just don't really want, I mean, most people, they don't want to marshal the arguments. So it'd be very hard, I think, right now to write a show like that because it'd be very hard to get people in the writer's room who could represent the other side. Hmm. Yeah. And then the third thing I think is just that everybody is just terrified. Well, right. And we believe, we believe that there's no such thing as a 30-share, 40-share TV show, except that no one's put one on yet. <laughs> like, you know, the thing about show business is that nothing works and then suddenly it until works. it does. Question for you, Rob, if you know the answer to this. Uh, just looking through his uh, his credits there, two of the biggest sitcoms that he produced, he kept his name off of uh, Facts of Life and Silver Spoons, which are shows yeah. not important issue shows. Had he decided at that point his brand was sitcoms that deal with important issues, so he was going to just keep his name down on the 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 ones that just make uh i mean how much do you think silver spoons bought, brought in for him and it's <laughs> well you know you never know like he at that he was also one of those guys who diversified there are a few of these these mega producers in the from the 70s um one is Stephen cannell the other is norman lear and there are others where he's he owned station groups you know he owned tv stations so this guy yeah. was not just a writer, producer, thinker, whatever. He was also kind of a businessman. So um, not putting his name on it probably meant he thought of it. It came from a different bucket, you know, came from the business bucket. So, I mean, I, I don't really don't know why he didn't on those because he had, I mean, he was, he had a factory for a while. He was putting stuff up, but it's kind of an interesting idea also because he represents at a hundred years old, died at 101, I guess, an entire century of America that included at least one world war, which he fought in a cold war, Civil rights, the 60s, and then the 70s. His shows weren't about politics, they're about characters. Like everybody, I think about a, if, you, if you were going to pitch a political show today, you'd pitch a show about people in politics or people in media, because people in politics and media think that they're really fascinating and that everybody wants to see more about them. You know, more, more me screams, you know, media elites. But those were not, Archie Bunker was not an elite, and Anne Romano in One Day at a Time was an elite, and George Jefferson definitely wasn't an elite. These people weren't elitists, they were just Americans. And they did remind people of other Americans they knew. So what's important to, I think, remember about Norman Lear was that despite the fact that he was sort of an old line American liberal with very old fashioned liberal ideas, he was not a snob. And um, I think you'd have a hard time finding somebody with that amount of reach and influence and sheer minutes of television time or somebody in an office hearing a pitch who is not a snob. I will also mention HBO did a great documentary on Norman a few years back. To even, I think, I'm sure it's streaming on Max, uh, which I really loved. So I recommend checking that out for more there. But Elaine did a look this week at what's going on, actually going on in those pitch rooms to make the season of 2024 here of television. And what'd you find? Uh, well, looking to the future of television, it's just been a weird, tough year for the industry. You know, it's like you're looking at coming out of six months of two concurrent strikes and the top of the year, mind you, which seems so far away now. It's like the top of 23 was marked by so many layoffs because the industry is still reeling from all of this consolidation, all of these mergers and, you know, all of this cost cutting that seems to be necessary to get it to a place where, you know, the the corporate jargon being right-sizing, right, to where it needs to be. Yeah, I mean, those 600 shows are gone and we're going to some level, but it ain't anywhere near 600. No, and I don't think we're going to be reaching 600 again by, by all accounts. And so I decided to reach out to some agents, some writers, producers, get a sense of what is being pitched, what are people looking for right now, especially with these slimmer appetites from streamers and networks. And coming out of the strikes, like, how does that impact how they're looking at programming? And it's already a weird time of year, right? Like, let me preface this, to do this kind of story. We've got another week or two before the town effectively shuts down for the rest of 23. But as sort of a a table setting for going into 24, like, what are we looking at? And essentially what I'm hearing from the writers is very few people are actually pitching right now, right? Because Mm. it's like, you think about it, going into the strikes, going into the writer strike in May, 
anything that was already happening, any writers' rooms that were in progress, any uh, you know deals that were in the middle of going through business affairs, were all halted pretty abruptly. So they're still trying to figure all of that stuff out. Anything that was in BA that's in limbo, like I've heard from writers who are like, well, you know, I've still got all this stuff that was that still has to be lawyered through. And then writers' rooms, which are slowly getting back in gear. Although not all of them, as we've reported, uh, you know, like the WGA has been on Amazon Studios to try and get some of their suspended writers rooms back in action. So like pitching and like future shows are in some ways not at the forefront of people's minds right now. But the things that they are looking for, (laughs) when I do the sort of accounting of, of what the selling and buying market looks like every couple of years, I mean, on the drama side. I don't think it'll surprise anyone to hear that people want, quote unquote, like elevated broadcast. They want family drama. When now that succession is off the air, now that you don't have a parenthood or a this is us, people want a family drama of some kind. And that's like a, that ranges. That's like a wide gamut of like family stories. Like a this is us is not a succession, right? (laughs) Well, succession is one thing, I guess. Yeah. But uh, the broadcast, what does that, what is that? um, Some little pieces on ABC. There is that, that genre of family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Friday Night Live probably felt one of that to some degree, but you know, so there's, there's, I can't necessarily think of one that is like that right now. Yeah, right, okay. exactly. Like what's on you the know. air right now? People want like a good one-hour family drama, whether that's like an edgier one or right, like or, a soapier one, you know. But yeah, that's what yeah. they're looking for uh, okay. to replace those. And then on the action side, Jack Ryan comes up a lot, right? Like the Amazon uh, Studio show. That's sort of like I call it. I call it like. Dad, dad dramas. Dad, t- like, dad TV. Dad TV is the word. No, it's, it's People uh, want their dad TV. Yeah. You know, they want their reacher. They want their like terminal. They want their le- sort of like elevated CBS procedurals. Right. It's like right. you, you think about the other long running shows that are going off the air next year, like Blue Bloods is going to be in its last season right. next year. Right. You know, we're, we're sort of coming up on a dearth of like long time programming. So families and police shows. So basically they've come around to people want exactly what TV viewers have wanted. Exactly. This quote didn't make it into the story, but one agent did say, it's a return to television. (laughs) (laughs) And I kind of like, I mean, the agent I was talking to, like, was fully aware of how that sounded, but (laughs) but but he's self-aware, but but still, he still said it. So, yeah, exactly. A return to television. And it's like, well, yeah, sort of a return to convention, right? It's like, okay, so people want procedurals. That's also another thing I heard. People want procedurals. the The suits factor, right? Yes, the suits factor because Suits has found an enormous second life on Netflix. Right. And as one agent said, you know, it's like, yeah, people come for Meghan Markle, but they stay for the show. And it's like, they, they, don't, they don't stay for to rerun stay like for, seven seasons of that. Yeah, whatever it was. Yeah, number of episodes, sure. Yeah, yeah. And then on the comedy yeah. side, like, you know, comedy has been a tough sell these last couple of years. Like, it's been much harder to sell a comedy project than a drama project. And... Right. Well, this is, I mean, the international factor here, right? Yeah, right. Because, like, you have a comedy that needs to be able to travel now. It's not like you have a comedy that needs to just be able to do well with Middle America. It needs to be able to travel all across the world and even when it's translated, you know, when it's dubbed. Because if you have a service like Netflix, it's like you're not just looking at an American audience. You're you're trying to get this, this thing to, to do well. Yeah, on a scale. In every and... other territory yeah, um, to, yeah. for your 220 million subscribers. So that's just, it's just harder yeah. to figure out what that is. Well, you had a, you had a term here. Yeah, so please oh, yeah. Is, introduce us to this. You have two terms in the piece. First one, give us the, yeah, what's this? More than one agent was like, they're looking for hard funny right now. And I said, what, what is hard funny? <laughs> What does that mean? <laughs> Rob, have you ever written, written anything that's hard funny in your in your career? Yeah, I hope. I mean, I've been trying to. I mean, <laughs> comedies have worked internationally. I mean, you can talk to any, almost anybody in their 30s who didn't grow up in the United States and you ask them how they learned English and they say, I, I, mean, friends. I, I this yeah. friend, friends, like right. these do work. The problem wasn't that they went away from these or they, 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 they weren't getting them. The problem was they actually turned against them. If you were pitching a big, funny show, they said, this sounds too big, funny. No, big, funny, not hard, funny, big, funny. Yeah, everybody decided that what they, what they were happy with a two share or a one share or a million viewers or 800,000 viewers. And they all played this ridiculous uh, demographic game, which is like, well, we have 800,000 viewers, but they're the 800,000 you want. Right. Which doesn't make any sense when you're on a subscription business, obviously, because 800,000 right. subscriptions are the same. Nobody actually wants to be in show business. They all want to be something else. In show business, you're trying to get as many people in tennis as possible, trying to be as funny as you can be. And that is just a thing that just we went for you know past 15, 20 years against. Not, not just that we lost our way. We just act actively choosing the projects that were weird and quirky and not funny. Yeah. Yeah. And calling them comedies. 
And the thing that you're alluding to, Rob, it sounds like is the the sort of like auteur driven, like half hour. Like yeah. the thing that's not hard funny is the thing you watch and then you're like, is this a comedy? Am like I this is, I'm, am I laughing? Am There's I no not laugh laughing? There's yeah, no laugh track. Yeah. The, the quote unquote sad comms, you know, like yeah. the, the, the thing I've heard repeatedly is just like, they don't want like the master of none kind of show anymore. Right. Like that, that came in vogue for a while, for a number of years and now has sort of. But faded. it was never successful. The problem with those shows is they're, you, you, it, they were never successful. You mm. couldn't connect that show to Netflix subscriptions, which is what you need to do. The, the problem is all these guys decided that they were, the minute they decided that they weren't in show business anymore, they decided they were in the consumer product business, right? Which is they're selling a product for a monthly fee, which is something that people in show business are terrible, terrible at. They have no experience in this business. They have no experience pricing. That's not Procter & Gamble. You know, you want, the minute you say, um, I'm, gonna, I'm coming up with an even more vague way to uh, discover whether the show I'm making at a million, billion dollars a pop is successful, the minute you actually put in some weird obfuscation thing like, well, you know, the way it looks of our, our subscriber, I'll, I'll, the minute you do that, you've shot yourself in the foot. We don't know anything in this business. The only information we get are, are people watching or not? And everyone just got too clever. I think what people need to do is before they go to work at studios and networks, they need to hit themselves in the head with a hammer really hard. So they do not attempt to think, just react. Just if it seems funny or fresh or different, buy it. Yeah. Don't think about it. The, way, what is, so what is hard fun? Just so we talk about the hard what is even define it for me. I don't even know exactly what that means. Like so laugh what is it? out loud funny. Okay, like, all right. Yeah. So CBS <laughs> sitcom. CBS, uh, yeah, CBS hard funny. To Rob's point, I mean, you know, the American autos of the world get maybe one, maybe maybe two million viewers. You know, but Night Court was the big hit last year, right? Uh, of, of those, you know, of the, of the new of the new comedies last year, right. which was a traditional. I mean, it's based on IP, of course, but. You know, and, and the CBS sitcoms repeatedly get five to seven or were getting five to seven million viewers a week. It's like double, you know, and to Rob's point, it's a mass, mass audience. So it makes total sense. And Elaine, another consideration here as the ad tiers of these streaming services become a much bigger part of the business is to Rob's point, you're not about subscribers anymore. Having that larger audience means more money in the door, you know, for for the ad for the streaming business too. So there's a lot of factors that that, that play in. And I kind of imagine also more traditional ad breaks, right? You would think, as uh, yeah. opposed to I just mean, doing like a well, you, you know whatever like a straight 28 minute <laughs> like start to yeah, finish on demand to, thing. Like now yeah. you can sort of the traditional structure it's more back, money. I imagine. It's more money. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the um, fact that people who are tasked with producing and buying and broadcasting or airing comedies have to say, we're looking for big funny. Exactly. I mean, if you could go back and explain that to Brandon Tartikoff, and Fred right. Silverman, like, or yeah. David Sarnoff, and say, no, you know, in the on? future, the comedy people are going to be looking for big funny. They look at you like, what on earth they've been looking for for the past 10, 15 years? I read a lot of critics uh, over the past decade look, talking about things. These shows are genre busters that, that, broke the line between comedy and drama or comedy. And yeah. so basically between funny and not funny. <laughs> yeah. Right. The heavy emphasis on the not funny. By not the way. funny. <laughs> yeah. That said, yeah. that said, people are like, well, except, you know, you don't talk about sort of genre, things that are between genre or not like hard. Fun. The bear, hugely popular, right? Like yeah. funny. So it's like there are always these exceptions. So people were exactly. like, yeah, we want hard, funny, like, the, or the bear. The, the, bear's the bear <laughs> or the bear. Or the bear, right. Yeah, or the bear. It's a drama, though. It's, it's not. It feels like a drama, but don't, isn't it's it? It's a half like, hour. I don't know, whatever. Yeah, it's yeah, a half I hour. It's a dramedy. It's, it's, yeah, either way. But outside of that, dramedies are out. Dramedies are out. Okay, yes. no dramedies. Hard, All funny right. is in. No sad comms, no dramedies. Please, right. more hard, funny. And then on the drama side, procedurals, action adventure, and family stuff of all gotcha. stripes. But television from the 1950s. <laughs> Listen, we've yeah. reinvented it, ladies exactly. and gentlemen. After <laughs> all this, <laughs> but you know, in your lane, you know, your point about the family drama show. There's no friends right now. I mean, right. there's, you know, there's nothing, and that was the that is the big. I mean, what is the biggest show in the world, right? If you were to ask that question to anybody, what are you know, any generation from you know to Gen Z to to, to the millennials to Gen X. And what does nobody do? You know, no one's making that show. It's like, you know, how I met your mother kind of filled that bucket for a while after mm -hmm. Friends went off. And since that show's gone off, there's been nothing on network TV. You know, it's been young Sheldon in the neighborhood and, you know, family right. sitcom stuff. But there's been no young urban professional NBC kind of 90s show that clearly the audience, they love it. 
Yeah, I mean, and and also people want apparently workplace comedies and ensemble comedies, and it's like, oh, like The Office. The Office, like, <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. no, no yeah. Like, that's the, exactly the, what the they Office mean. is being. You know, Greg's talking about you know or whatever he's talking about remaking it. But so, Rob, you know, you uh, talked about this in your in your podcast this week a little bit about you know the tweaks, right? There's a little bit of tweaks here. Yeah, that's, that's the 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 traditional the, the, yet fresh. That was what the CBS mandate was years ago. <laughs> Traditional yet fresh. Okay. Yeah. I mean, look, all that's true. It's frustrating for some people who write comedy like me because, I mean, the good news about the about Elaine's piece is that when I read it, I thought, oh, that's good because my agent is saying and my manager is saying exactly the same thing. Okay. Which means that they're not just lying. They're to not me. lying. <laughs> like, you, you always want to, you know, it's a double check, right? <laughs> that probably was half the readership, Elaine. Yeah, right. And so, I mean, I am actually have to hop off this in five minutes, 10 minutes, because I do have a pitch. I have oh. a pitch at uh, three. But, and it's, but it's, it's one of these... You know, socializing the idea to someone who's not really a buyer, but could be a partner. That's, so that's kind of what's happening now, I think, in a lot of skirmishing and, and uh, stuff to people, for people to think about. But I suspect that, you know, look, I guess they said, like, nothing works and then suddenly it works. Someone's going to put on a big, loud, noisy comedy. It's helpful to have an audience there. You know, they put on a lot. They had a lot of those. Like, you know, we talk about the, those NBC young people in the city comedies. When Don Allmeyer was running NBC, he said he wanted you as an NBC viewer to be able to turn on NBC at any time in prime time, any weeknight, and see a comedy about young people in an urban environment. And he, you know, he he got his wish. That's what they did. I mean, we can go through the list of all these like dead no, shows. No, that yeah, get, no. right? <laughs> so they kind of killed it, right? They they, yeah, they like strangled the, the goose. The big, you know, twenty of them, and there you go. Yeah, yeah. Well, no matter what it is, Rob, you should just make sure that your pitch is. And here's the next term that <laughs> yes, I kept yes. hearing. Yeah. Undeniable. <laughs> it's got to be undeniable. This word organically came up in so many conversations I had with agents, and every time I heard it, right. I was like, "Yeah, but what does it mean? What is undeniable?" Yeah. And they were all like, well, you know, like, it was basically like, if you know, you know, like, if you, you'll know it when you see it. And it's like, okay, but what does this mean? And, yeah, and, it, and it, it almost seems like a, like a Rorschach test or like a, it's like a placeholder yeah. for, but, but taste, but taste being so subjective, I just was unclear yeah. still at the end of these conversations, what undeniable means other than this person feels like they know. Right. Yeah, but I, you know, that's a good – that actually is good news, right? Because undeniable means I just don't – don't make me think about it. Mm -hmm. Just make it an intuitive gut thing that I thought, oh, this has got to be. That, that's one version of undeniable. The second version of undeniable is package it up, put a lot of ornaments on that tree, come into our office with not just a script and an idea and a showrunner and something else and creative elements and IP even, but come with somebody famous who wants to be in it. Like right. that that also is undeniable. It's undeniable. Undeniable deal memo has the same kind of velocity as the undeniable idea. But anytime, anytime I hear people talking about how they they just want to make big intuitive decisions, I think, okay, well, that's now you're in show business and right. you're gonna fail a lot. Sounds like the moment for my Hello Larry reboot is coming around. <laughs> <laughs> you knew this day would come, Richard, but you bring uh, you that know. up in your pitch meeting. Let, let them yeah. know. You gotta come. <laughs> Rob. Pull that out and see if, see if Richard has a, has, a, has a shot here. Would you, in your, in your pitch meeting, that'd be great. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, Hello, Larry was a show about a guy with a radio show. Well, and I did now remember. He a, now he's a podcast. All day yeah. For yeah. A living. Yeah. Now he's yeah. like, it's like, it's Frasier. But, you know, that's what Frasier is. It's Hello, hey, Larry. Frasier reboot. You know, there you go. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Continuation doing very well there. Anyway, uh, anyway, great piece. A lot of great details in there, including which streamers and networks are more open for business than others right now, Elaine. Mm -hmm. So I recommend you go check that out over at theangler.com. All right, up next, Janice Min joins us for her conversation with Melissa DeRosa, the former chief of staff of former New York governor, Andrew Cuomo. We'll be right back after a break. All right, we're back with Ankler CEO Janice Min. Janice, nice of you to join us. It's been a while. Something we said or not enough and just like that conversation, you know, what, what's you going know, on? You guys had it after I had to come in and correct your Barbie mistakes. <laughs> oh, is that it? Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. I've been a happy listener of the podcast and not a, not a participant. So right. thank you for that. Well, it has been a busy time. You've had a busy week, but I thought our listeners today, many of whom are, of course, Politically obsessed, politically interested, politically inclined. Might like to hear some snippets from one of our live events that we did this week or you did this week. You've had a few, though. You had one at moderating a women in film and also for Netflix. Yeah, my feet still hurt from. I guess I don't <laughs> I, have to wear heels, right? But I mean, you know, you're talking you're talking to me, Janice. Yeah, so yeah, you exactly. don't, Sean. So why yeah. do I? But yeah. it's a voluntary masochism. I. 
do. But anyway, it was great. Did several events in the past week, but I thought for our listeners, they might find this one particularly interesting. It's a little bit out of the Hollywood wheelhouse, but we do an in-conversation series at Zibby's Bookshop in Santa Monica. And Zibby is, just for those who don't know who Zibby is, Zibby is- I don't. You don't know? So Zibby has this, she's created this sort of books empire and, you know, with a home base of this little store on Montana Avenue amidst all the nail salons and places you can get IVs and Botox. So so a place with actual books on (laughs) Montana Avenue. (laughs) Sounds like a good addition to the neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. And she's also, her brother is Teddy Schwartzman, who is the movie producer who did Dumb Money, which I still would, I'm dying to see. And I'm sure I can make that possible, but I still have, I I have not seen yet. So anyway, Zibby owns this bookshop. We have hosted several in conversations, uh, live book talks with her. This one was, as you said, with Melissa DeRosa. She might not be a household name to people in entertainment, but she's a big name in New York. And she was, yeah. She was Governor Andrew Cuomo's right hand and her, the official title secretary, but she really acts as chief of staff. The sing, She was the single most powerful non-elected official in New York State. And a lot of people would recognize her face because she was sitting by Governor Cuomo during COVID and his daily press conferences. I remember. And she, yes. And she was also by his side during his downfall which Mm. some people may remember too. But she has a memoir called What's Left Unsaid, which is completely scorching. (laughs) Okay, the best kind. (laughs) Oh my God, there's no... Stone uh, left unturned or, uh, yeah. No or, or enemy left bridge, unturned. Uh, How about bridge, that? Yeah. Bridge not burned. Yeah. yeah. No, I, <laughs> but I, I respect it because she's totally candid. Good. And she, as she will tell you, she was frustrated by the way the governor's final months were portrayed. And mm. she felt like she wanted to correct the record as she sees it. Okay. But the book is a great read if you love politics. So I thought there'd be some clips here people might want to hear. We'll just play a few of them. But she pulls no punches. She talks about Joe Biden's electability, the likelihood of Trump being reelected, doesn't say great things about Kamala Harris, AOC. Of course. Then she talks about anti-Semitism in New York City and mm. what Cuomo would do. Um, I also asked her about RFK Jr., which was interesting because in the audience was Michaela Kennedy Cuomo, ah. one of yeah, one of Andrew Cuomo's daughters, who when I when the name RFK Jr. came up, she put her face in her hands. Ah. So, <laughs> which many people are doing. I would say, yeah, she's probably not alone, but yeah. Right. No, she's probably not alone. But we can pick it up here where I ask her about her thoughts on the re-election of Joe Biden. Well, how is it looking to you right now? You have you're a student of polls and Yeah, it's not looking good. It's not looking good. And I think that Democratic strategists who go on CNN and MSNBC and NPR and say we're a year out and the polls are wrong and this and that are doing the party and the country a great disservice. Because I think we should be pulling every fire alarm we can see and saying, if we don't throw our body in front of this, it's going to happen. But what does that mean? That means strategizing, organizing. That means coming together to come up with a message, a concerted strategy. Right now, the Democratic Party is firing at its, each other and itself. It's the frog in the, bo- in the pot of boiling water. People don't—it's easier not to deal with a problem if you don't acknowledge that it exists. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that there is a certain amount uh, from the top in D.C., in the consultant class, on MSNBC, on NPR, of people saying, don't worry, it's going to be fine, because what's the answer? And none of them have the answer. Well, okay, if you're Joe Biden and you were his advisor, if you were Joe Biden's advisor, would you recommend he step aside? I don't know that I would recommend that he step aside. I would recommend potentially considering another running mate. Oof. Okay, so we are, we are in Kamala's backyard here, in the vice president's backyard. So so uh, tell me about that. Why do you feel that way? I think that they need to do something to shake it up. I think they need to show a little bit of life. And I think that generally the bottom of the ticket doesn't necessarily help, but it also very rarely hurts. And right now I think it's actively hurting because there is a narrative being pushed on the right that Joe Biden is not going to make it through the next term. He'll right. get elected and step aside or, you know, something God forbid would happen to him. He's older. And so we're going to end up with a Kamala Harris 
presidency. And as unpopular as Donald Trump is, amazingly, Kamala Harris is more unpopular. <laughs> and I like her, honestly. I, I liked her as attorney general in California. That was when I first met her. I was working for the attorney general in New York at the time. So I interacted with her in a couple of cases we all worked on together. I have respect for her. I, I think she's a gifted, smart person. But I also live in the real world. And I understand that mine is the minority opinion by a lot. And so at some point, we have to start to acknowledge these things and then start to make some tough decisions that could potentially help us and start to say, okay, we can't do anything about the fact that Joe Biden is 81 years old, but we don't have to keep this vice presidential nominee. We could consider other, you know, like there are things you can do and things you can't do. Let's talk about independent candidates. And we have now that we have a Kennedy Cuomo in the house, um, I need to ask you about, um, um, about RFK Jr. And uh, he's polling more than would probably be comfortable for the Democrats, right? Okay, so he's an interesting candidate because, Michaela, just bear with me. <laughs> Because he's a Kennedy, he does get a certain cachet and does pick apart a, a little piece of the Democratic Party nostalgia. Yes. But he's also a big anti-vaxxer. And so interestingly, he does take a portion of the conservative, what I think is nutty side of the population. But he's taking a bigger part of the Democratic part than the Republican part. So when you put the two against each other, he hurts Biden. So, I mean, you see it in these battleground state polls. I was looking at some polling today in Pennsylvania, Michigan. It's, you know, where, where Trump is winning by one, two, three points, but it's a head-to-head. -head. When you put him in the race, he all of a sudden is winning by four or five points. Wow. So, I mean, the question is, will cooler heads prevail? Who knows? But that would be the net effect, I think, of him running. Uh, and Jill Stein, is she? <laughs> yeah, she's another walking disaster. I mean, Jill Stein is the Green Party candidate. She, we have to thank for 2016. This was Hillary Clinton would be president, but for Jill Stein. And I understand not a lot of people loved Hillary, but my God, the world would be a better place if we didn't have Trump. But so, you know, these are people who are playing to their own ego, who care about themselves first. This is not about principle. It's not about party. This is about me, me, me. And then the net effect, I fear, is going to be Donald Trump back in Washington. How much do mainstream Democrats need to cater to the progressive wing of the Democratic Party? Always, there's always tension within parties, right? And everyone has a role and a job, and the far left pulls the center a little bit left, and you make compromise, and that's how you get some things done. The same thing used to be true on the right. It's completely—it's gone so far off the rails. The far right is now, you know, like wearing—like walking around in Charlottesville, you know— right. With like with but with like hoods over their face yeah. as if they're modern day KKK and the far left can't find it in their bodies to be able to denounce terrorism. So I think it's just time to reject the extremes. I think that they are a cancer on both sides. Wow. And I think that for a period of time, and it's still I think is going on, but I think the country is starting to hopefully right size it for itself. The outsized presence of the minority voices in the conversation through social media, where somebody like AOC, who was a bartender turned member of Congress, when the world fell in love with her lipstick and all of a sudden we care what this woman thinks about policy, that is bad. <laughs> that is bad. And so I think that we should all say that in a more sober and open and honest Do you way rather that than. Way about her? Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, yes. It's, you know, look, these people are not in touch with the real world. They're not. And I think that, fine, have a voice. You got elected by your constituents, but you represent 450,000 people in a congressional district in Queens. The end. You do not speak for the party. You do not speak for the Democratic Party. You do not speak for my values. You do not speak for New York State. I, I want to also ask you, while we're still in New York, in New York State, and the uh, Governor Cuomo, where there is so much rampant um, Islamophobia anti and anti-Semitism anti running rife in New York um, at the moment. And you know this, there is a protest every day. You can find whichever one you want. Um, how do you think it's currently being handled and what would Governor 
Cuomo have done? I think it's being handled terribly. I actually don't think that the Islam uh, that there is Islamophobia on on parade right now. I think it's much more anti-Semitism, and it's so scary. Like I've never seen and never believed I would see in my lifetime. And I was having dinner with a few friends a couple of weeks ago, and they were saying to me that they're afraid to wear their Star of yeah. David. And as somebody who is not Jewish, but who grew up surrounded by Jewish people, the Jewish culture, went to Jewish summer camp, best friends in my life are Jewish, my ex-husband was Jewish, I like culturally very much identify in that world. It was so crazy for me to hear my friends say, I'm afraid to get on the subway and wear Star of David. And I said, would it be okay if I wore one or would that be offensive? Because I wouldn't want to do something that would offend right. people. And they were like, tears in their eyes, please do that. That's so incredible. But that speaks to the level of fear that people have right now on anti-Semitism in New York City. New York City. We're not talking about, you know, redneck, sorry, South Carolina or something. You know what I mean? We're talking about New York City. And it's not, I don't think right now, a both sides issue. It is very much an anti-Semitism issue. And there is a total lack of leadership. They're not cracking down on these protests that are turning violent. Mm -hmm. They're not holding people accountable. You cannot have a situation where you have people tearing down the American flag on Veterans Day and trying to, and the, and the Israeli flag and trying to put up a Palestinian flag, not because I am against Palestinians, but you don't get to destroy private property. You don't get to try to bang down the doors to Grand Central and bring the subways to a screeching halt. Arrest those people. Right. Send a message. Hold them accountable. Like, if we're going to say that we stand against hate in all forms, then we have to mean it. And it can't just be lip service on Twitter. It has to be with government action. Right. And I think that the longer it goes where we're not cracking down on those kinds of things, the more emboldened people get. And then where does it go? And then it really, truly spirals. And that's what I'm really concerned about. Uh, and what about campuses? Columbia is one of the hotbeds. Oh, my God. Uh, the campuses are so out of control. I went to Cornell. I'm embarrassed for how they, they have handled this up until this point. It's not fair that Jewish students go to colleges where they feel unsafe. Right. Full stop. End of discussion. Yeah. The same way that Hamas is a terrorist organization. Full stop. End of discussion. The same way Al-Qaeda was after 9-11. And so I just think there's been a lack of leadership at every level. So yeah, certainly a very tense and you know complicated time here in New York City at the moment, Janice, and certainly in regards to anti-Semitism, certainly also our migrant housing funding crisis really in the city. And I mentioned in the wake up today that our current mayor, Eric Adams, has the now has the lowest approval rating in New York City of any mayor in 27 years since they started doing the Quinnipiac University poll. Wait, who who was the one 27 years ago? Who? who? <laughs> well, it was, it was back to 96. So it would have been Giuliani, I think, at the time, actually, now that I think. But that's only when the poll started. It doesn't say that. Oh, so that's the oh. only reason that it, that, that it goes back that far, you know. It's not a, okay. it, it could have been worse. It could go back to, you know, Ed Koch. It could go back to, you know, who knows? Maybe, right. Know, uh, right. But, uh, well, so Eric Adams, I had actually asked Melissa about Eric Adams. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine, given what happened with the governor and the investigation by Letitia James at the time, which she debunks multiple ways in her <laughs> memoir and she did in the conversation, she said she's skeptical of all investigations and for our for those who aren't familiar, who don't follow New York politics, Eric Adams is under investigation. And the FBI, I believe, stopped him on the sidewalk and took his phone and laptop or it was something very dramatic. There's, there's some confiscation going on. Yes, that, confiscation. That sure. It's yeah. never good to have never, never a good sign on the streets of New York City. No. <laughs> no. But one of the things that was super interesting she talked about was not ruling out the fact that Governor Cuomo might run for office again and that polling is indicating he would win. And so there's lots of speculation out there that Governor Cuomo could one day become Mayor Cuomo. I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, I would you know, never say never. And, you right? know, I mean, it's not, it's, I mean, I guess it's a bit of a demotion in a sense going from governor to mayor, but you're the mayor that, you know, the most, not biggest, but certainly the most well known cities in the world. And the, that, you know, I mean, Eric Adams is always flying to other countries to, you know, it's a, it's a global position. They've turned it into that position. When he's not in private clubs. When he's not in the club. Yeah, exactly. He's uh, <laughs> or hanging out on 
islands in the in the Caribbean, but uh, yeah, he's flown to, to Latin America. He's flown to I think Israel. You know, like that role has not just been you know make sure the trash gets picked up on time in, in New York here, and, well, and which know, doesn't even happen. Which, but, well, yeah. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> the trash people do a great job in New York City, Janice. I'm not going to say otherwise, so I'll leave it there. But all right, I didn't mean to demean sanitation. Uh, yeah, okay, exactly. But Bloomberg was certainly you know a, a very well liked mayor, and he certainly would probably fit more in that mold of of elected officials. So I you know I oh. could see I. Could see well, it, you know. People have short memories, yes, right. Yeah. And I think in times of crisis, people always lean on f- yep. familiarity and yep. love him or hate him as a ruler. And you know, leaving out the Me Too accusations from this conversation, he was certainly an effective governor. So never say never. And the other thing I should mention is that Melissa herself has not ruled out running for office as well. And okay. one of the things I found refreshing about her, and she said, you know, I can sit here and throw shade at all these people and she doesn't hide her feelings. And she said, so I have to be fully willing to put myself in the line of fire as well. So she knows, she knows she is more candid than the average person. And she would say that's because she has such strong convictions. So well, there you go. See how well those strong convictions work out in politics. Always an interesting combination. But uh, in New York? In New York, they work. In New of, York, exactly. they work. Exactly. your audience. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. so anyway, I hope everybody enjoyed hearing those comments. Obviously, it's going to be a pretty contentious presidential cycle. I didn't even include her comments about Nikki Haley, which were oh. also <laughs> unsparing. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. But we'll have more conversations very likely at Zibby's bookshop coming up that we'll tell you about. So, Sean, thanks for letting me back on the pod. <laughs> Janice, I tell you every week in Slack, you're welcome anytime you like. But one of these days, you'll you'll take me back up on it to correct our our, our holiday movie uh, prediction things that we get wrong so you can re- redeem ourselves. Yeah. I mean, I, so I don't have to yell at my AirPods. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's much more healthy to get it out in person. So, yeah. Totally. Yeah. In front of an audience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In public. Great. Anyway, Janice, good to see you. That's a wrap for the podcast this week. Thanks, of course, to Elaine and Richard. A pleasure as always with them and Rob Long also for joining. And of course, to a uh, special guest here, uh, Melissa DeRosa. Thanks for making time to have that conversation with Janice there at the Ankler event. And remember, you can subscribe to the Ankler at theankler.com to get the latest from Sir Rushfield, my daily wake up newsletter, entertainment strategy guy, the latest from Peter, Elaine, Claire, and the rest of the Ankler team. And follow Prestige the Prestige Junkie. Prestige uh, and junkie. Oh, Prestige Junkie, of course. Yeah, I mentioned yeah. at the top, of course. Okay, the sorry. New, new, See, I'm meddling. No, okay. I, <laughs> this is what our Slack conversations are like. <laughs> if you want to know what's up with me and Jonas on Slack. Uh, Prestige Junkie, yes, which I dropped. To, well, it's now in people's inboxes now, right? I guess, right? The day of this recording. How yes, about that? Yes, so on Thursday. So yes, you can read that this weekend. Yeah. Great new uh, column there, which I detail everything about. We have a new podcast launching this weekend, Art and Crafts, right? That's mm-hmm. what I got there, right? So that'll also be in your Ankler podcast feed. And you can follow the Ankler on socials at the Ankler, where we'll be updating you on all this information. Uh, that's about it. So thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>